0: going to be spending some time as we look at the story of the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1. Now, uh, as you're turning to Luke chapter 1, I wanted to tell you about uh, a conversation that Abby and I overheard the other day between our two sons. So, you know, we have Charlie, who's three, and we have Brooks, who is six. And, uh, you know, sometimes Charlie will hear words that he doesn't know. And so then he'll just ask Big Brother because uh, Big Brother is like his mentor, the guy that knows everything. And so he, uh, he said, hey, Brooks, what is daydreaming? What is daydreaming? And Brooks, almost without skipping a beat, says, daydreaming is like when you're in the middle of your spelling test but all you can do is think about how good the pepperoni pizza is going to taste at dinner time. And I was like, he is speaking from personal experience when he says this. It's like, it, you know, could not have given a more detailed answer. It's also helpful to know maybe that in the first grade, spelling test happens on Friday, which just so happens to be the same day that we do family pizza and movie night. All right, so he's like, you know what? actually have a perfect example. It's like you're, you're trying to spell the word cat, and then it's like pepperoni pizza just right there in your head, you know? But, but we all know what it's like to daydream. We, don't, we know what it's like to anticipate something. We know what it's like to hope for something, to have a longing, an expectation for something. And, and I say that because we're not so different from the people of God during the time period that the proclamation of Christ's birth would take place. You see, the people of God during this time period were waiting eagerly for the Messiah to come. It was a time in which uh, they were discouraged and downtrodden, overlooked by many. Uh, Yes, there were moments in Israel's history where they were the kingdom, where their kings were powerful, but at this point, those days were long gone. Yeah, there were moments that there were revivals, and and there were moments that maybe the future looked bright, but most of those had had fizzled out long before they really got going. And and then history continues, and and we know how the story goes. Yes, they returned, and they were able to rebuild the temple. They were able to rebuild the city, but what happened? Alexander the Great came. He established Greek culture as kind of the primary kingdom, and then not long after that, the Romans took power, and they added to pagan practice. And I wonder if the people of God, staring at the promise of Isaiah, even as we read this morning, wondered if it would ever come to pass. I mean, it seemed like the whole world had moved on at this point. It even seemed as if maybe God had moved on. The prophets had been silent for 400 years, there was, there was perhaps little hope. During this time period. But what do we know from Galatians 4 4? That God had not forgotten, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, God had been sovereignly and strategically working out every single detail of the moment when he would fulfill these promises. The moment in which the Son of God would enter the world, the moment in which hope would come. And the things that were dreamed for would come to pass. We know that sin had fractured the relationship between God and man, and man longed for the day in which God would dwell amongst them again. Humanity clung to that promise made in those somber moments in the Garden of Eden Eve, there will be one that will come from your line who will crush the head of the serpent. And the story of Christmas is that he came and his name is Christ Jesus. As we look at Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, this will be our theme. That the miraculous conception of Christ proves that he is the messianic king who fulfills the promises of God and accomplishes what seems impossible. That Christ is the messianic king, that he accomplishes what is seemingly impossible. Impossible. Now, as we enter into Luke, uh, I want you to know that Luke was writing from many records and accounts taken from eyewitnesses. So, uh, this man named Theophilus had kind of put him in charge of uh, compiling the stories of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And so, that's what we have here in the Gospel of Luke. He is taking the cosmic story of God throughout all eternity and he is bringing it to our hands through the pages of Scripture. Here, I want you to see that um, Luke is almost writing on, on two levels. He's showing us the eternal story of God in a very grand way. And at the same time, he's showing how the eternal story of God weaves in all of these small, ordinary stories. A story of a young peasant girl named Mary, an elderly priest named Zachariah, uh, an ancestor from the house of David named Joseph. This story shows us that God, in His kindness, His mercy, His sovereignty, unites ordinary, feeble stories like ours to His It shows us who God is. Let's read Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. God's word says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. let's pray. Father God, we are your servants. Lord, would you lead us with your word? Would you feed us with this truth? And may we be reminded of the miraculous work that is the coming of Christ in the incarnation. May we be led to worship in awe of you during this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what I want to do is I want to walk through these verses together. And then after we do that, I want to just make some uh, inferences from what we see in this text. So let's just look at verse 26 to begin with. We read that it is in the sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Well, the sixth month of what? Uh, it is the sixth month that Elizabeth has been with child. Now at the beginning of Luke, what do we read? That the angel Gabriel goes to Zachariah, the priest, whenever he's in the temple, and he says that you in your old age, with your wife who is also barren, who is old, of old age, will give birth to a son, and his name will be John, and, and he's flabbergasted, he's like, how, how could that possibly be that, that we would be able to give birth to this child? And then he's silenced, and what happens? Um, Elizabeth gets pregnant, and so this is the sixth month of that pregnancy. Now, here's what's amazing about the way that uh, you can contrast the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Uh, the birth of John was to this family of a priest. The birth of Jesus was to a peasant girl named Mary. Uh, The proclamation that John would be born took place in a temple. The proclamation that Jesus would be born took place in the town of Nazareth. Uh, We see the humility of Christ on display through this. We even see the unexpected ways that God is at work in the world in bringing the hope of salvation through the contrast of these two individuals. And so Gabriel here, he, he comes to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, it's so interesting that this is the city that Jesus, his, his ancestry, his, his mom would come from because Nazareth was a town that was not notable at all. I wonder if, you know, Gabriel hearing this was almost like, really? Like, are you sure that, you know, you didn't get your coordinates mixed up, like Nazareth and Galilee? Like, Nazareth is so underwhelming that even one of the first disciples of Jesus, Nathanael, says whenever, you know, they they hear the word that uh, the Messiah has come and he's from Nazareth, he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what do we know? That yes, something good can come out of Nazareth, God himself would come out of Nazareth. And so, we, we continue to see God's unexpected plan unfold. Verse 27, it says that Gabriel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, what do we know about Mary? Who, who is Mary? Well, we read here that she's a virgin. She's betrothed to a man, which is kind of like engagement and that she is from Nazareth. I was reading a commentary this week by a guy named Kent Hughes, and uh, he's very blunt whenever he talks about the trajectory of Mary's life if nothing takes place at this point, if she just grows up as a normal young girl from the town of Nazareth. He said, "...from all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children... She would never travel farther than a few miles from home, and one day she would die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Now, Kent Hughes probably doesn't get asked to write Hallmark Christian cards uh, if if that's kind of the, the, the way he sees the world, but it gives us an accurate depiction of just the way that God can show favor and grace to people like us. Uh, there, was, there was nothing about Mary that made her worthy to be a servant of God. And yet we see God's grace and mercy upon her. And, and maybe you came in here this morning thinking, who knows if God could use me? Who, who knows if God sees what I'm going through? Who knows if God f- knows the, the pain that I feel or how difficult this week has been? And, and the story of Mary shows us that as as we, we saw in Jimmy's sermon last week, Psalm one thirty 138.6, although the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. He cares for you. He is mindful of you in the same way that He would care for someone like Mary. Now, we're told here in verse 27 that she was a virgin. We're told that twice because Luke wants the reader to be clear that the birth that would happen would be completely supernatural. We're also told that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, during this time, uh, betrothal is a formal commitment. Um, it's similar to engagement, but it would require something basically like divorce for uh, the the engagement for the betrothal to be called off. Um, the, the bride price had already been paid. There was about a year-long process that was leading up uh, to the day in which they would get married. And so that that is where Mary finds herself in the story betrothed. Now, if some of you are engaged, you know that there are are unique stressors that come with being engaged. Um, but most of those are like, what if we have to change the venue, or what if the caterer falls through, or, you know. Um, now imagine Mary's situation where you're preparing for marriage, you're like, you know, what's it going to be like to be a wife, what new responsibilities i going to have, and then Gabriel shows up and he's like, hey, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, okay? That's a big deal. That's like an abrupt change of plans. And yet, what we find here is that this was God's plan all along. Do you ever feel like there's just kind of this abrupt change of plans and, uh, you know, your five-year vision for your life abruptly changes? And what we see here is that God was at work in the details the whole time. How do I know that? Because we read that the man that she was betrothed to was from the house of David. And that is going to be a very important detail when it comes to God bringing his prophecies to pass. Let's continue. Verse 28. Gabriel says to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel speaks. He says that you will give birth to a child, and you will call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves. God saves. Only Jesus could fulfill this promise. This this points to the fact that Jesus is like no other and that we are in need of saving. Because of sin inherited from Adam and Eve, because our own rebellious hearts and our willful sin against God, we are separated from God and we are in need of saving. What bright ray of hope this would have been in such a dark time. You will give birth to a child and you will call him Jesus. God saves. God keeps his promises. Only Jesus could bear the crown of thorns and ascend the throne of heaven as the resurrected king. Only Jesus, in his sinless humanity, could fulfill the commands of God and place his righteousness upon us. Only Jesus could save. In reflecting on this reality, Pastor Tim Keller said, because God's holy, he had to do something about our sin. He can't ignore it. Because God's holy, he had to do something about our sin. Because he's merciful, he wanted to do something. Because he's mighty, he was able to do something. God is holy, so he had to do something. Because God is merciful, he wanted to do something to save us. And because God is powerful, because He is mighty, He's the only one able to do something. And so He sends His only Son to save us through the virgin womb of Mary. And look at the way that this child is described. He is the Son of the Most High. He will be great. He will be the eternal King who will reign on the throne of David, and He will have an unending kingdom. Now, Mary's response in verse 34 is How will this be? Since I'm a virgin. How could this be possible that I would conceive a child whenever I have never had physical relations with a man? And Gabriel's answer is extremely helpful for understanding both the deity of Christ and his full humanity. Verse 35, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That word for overshadow there is the same word that is used to describe the, the way that the presence of God would dwell in the temple in like a cloud. The presence of God will overshadow you, and therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, and he will be the son of God. You see, this child would not be conceived through natural biology, but through miraculous conception. then we're told in verses 36 through 37 that Mary's relative, Elizabeth, would also give birth to a child, that she had conceived a child. And then Genesis 18 is quoted that nothing is impossible with God. Uh, I I love that. Um, We know that it is true that nothing is impossible for God. God can do anything. But I also love that the way that this verse says that nothing is impossible with God, which implies God's presence with us, walking with Him. Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary's response is, behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary takes her humble seat in the theater of God's glory as the instrument that he would use to bring about his eternal plan of redemption. That's amazing. I, I love this story, and, and I hope you do too. I want to I uh, draw a few things out of it. Um, First, let's look at two realities that establish the identity of Christ. We're going to look at two realities, two actions, two responses. Um, don't worry, the first one will be the longest, just per usual. That's, that's how we'll do this thing. First, I want you to see Christ's miraculous conception. Well, what do we see here? That Mary is a virgin. That's, that's told to us in three different ways. First, Luke says twice that Mary was a virgin. And then she herself says, how will this be because I'm a virgin? Now, let me ask you a question. How much does the virgin birth of Christ or the virgin conception of Christ, how much does that affect your faith? I heard a pastor about a decade ago say, um, hypothetically, if if there was archaeological evidence that discovered that Christ had a biological father, that he was not conceived of the Holy Spirit, that uh, he was not born of a virgin, you know, should that really affect the foundation of our faith that much? You know, he said, if our faith can be rattled by such a small detail, then how strong is our faith really? Now, hopefully, you, like me, hear that and think, this guy doesn't understand how big of a deal this is. This is a first tier issue. This is vital to understanding who Christ is. If Christ was not conceived of a virgin, then what? Scripture isn't true. But then Jesus lied about his own identity. Then the prophecies that were prophesied in the Old Testament didn't actually come to pass, that we have no right substitute for our sin, that we indeed, when we die, will not be found blameless and we will spend eternity in hell. So yes, it matters that we firmly believe with conviction that this is a miraculous conception and that Mary was a virgin when Christ was conceived Now, whenever we look at this passage, I want you to see a few things. That in Gabriel's answer, he says, in verse 35, when she asks, How will this be since I am a virgin? He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, here we see one of the unique things about Christ's birth. The entire Trinity is involved here. Look at the Trinitarian nature of Christ's conception. What do we read? That the Holy Spirit is involved, right? That the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary. How will this take place? Through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Also through the power of the Most High, by the power of God the Father working within Mary. Not only that, that the Son of God would then be incarnated In the flesh, that the eternal Son of God in this moment is not being created, but he is being embodied. The eternal one will now have a birthday, taking on human flesh. Uh, We see the Trinitarian nature of God's work in the conception of Christ. Uh, We also see that the Holy Spirit, in in the same way that we see him hovering over the waters in the beginning of the creation narrative of Genesis. As he is, as God is speaking and creation is happening out of nothing, ex nihilo, in the same way, he is bringing about life in a unique way in the womb of Mary. She's conceived, or Christ is conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And why does this matter? Because it results in two things. First, it displays the filial relationship between God the Father and God the Son, This is why he can be called the Son of the Most High. This is why it says that he is wholly the Son of God. So not only that, it shows the filial relationship between God the Father and God the Son, thus declaring that Christ is fully divine. It also shows that Christ is holy, that he has a nature that is unlike any other. Let's look at these two. Verses 32 and 35 both say that Christ is the Son His deity is undeniable because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because he is conceived through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the power of the Most High, he is divine. He is the Son of God. He is one who is both fully human and fully God. This is why the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 would be fulfilled in his coming. That we would read, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. How could he be called Emmanuel? Because that means God with us. And he was God taking on flesh. Humanity had become, or full deity had become humanity. Not only that, we read in verse 35 that he would be called holy, the son of God. Now, why does that matter? Because although he would be fully human, he would be a human unlike any other. Why is that? Why does Romans 8, three says that Christ has taken on the likeness of sinful flesh? Well, it's because with Jesus being conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, he did not inherit a sin nature like every human did after Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Every human is born with something called original sin because our first parents sinned in the garden and then every person, you and I that have come after them have inherited that sin nature. Romans 5:13 says that exact thing. That sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, how could Christ here be declared holy? Because he was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he did not inherit a sin nature as you and I do. Christ did not have original sin. Now, some might say, well, then, does that mean that Christ is fully human? And if he doesn't have a sin nature like you and I do? Yes. Were Adam and Eve fully human in the garden before sin entered into the world? Yes, absolutely. And yet, Christ as the second Adam is completely unique in that he does not have a sin nature. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, this all sounds very, like, theological. There's a lot going on here. What, this, what does this actually mean? That Christ would be fully human and yet without a sin nature. That he would be fully divine and also fully man. Let me say this. That the union of humanity and deity are a necessity for accomplishing salvation. That the unity of humanity and deity are necessary for accomplishing salvation. Look at what First Timothy two:, five and six says. It says, "For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time." You see, only one who is fully human could bear the penalty for humanity's sin but only God could take that penalty upon Himself and then defeat sin, Satan, and death and rise again to give humanity eternal life. The unity of humanity and deity are are a necessity for accomplishing salvation. This means that we have an all-sufficient Savior who is a mediator between us and God. Not only that, if Jesus had any sin of His own, then He could not bear yours. Why does it matter that Christ is holy? Why does it matter that he does not have a sin nature? Because if Jesus had any sin of his own, he could not bear your sin. But as one who is blameless, as one who is sinless, as one who is perfectly righteous in every way, he can take upon your sin and exchange your sinfulness for his righteousness and declare you right with God. This is what 2 Corinthians five twenty one says. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him be sin. He took all of your sin, and he placed it on the one who had never known sin. So that in him, when you trust in him, when you place your faith in him, you would become righteous before God. This is why the story of Christmas matters so much because it reveals to us who Christ is. Not only does it reveal the identity of Christ, it reveals the way in which Christ relates to you. That he understands you. That he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted with sin. That he can relate to your suffering. And at the same time, because he is perfectly holy and righteous, he is able to come before God the Father as the great high priest and speak on your behalf. That's why Hebrews 4.15 is so comforting. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not constantly saying, get your act together. Man, can it really be that hard to be a human? No. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The second reality I want you to see in this passage is Christ's messianic kingship. Now, while Joseph didn't play a role in the conception of Christ, well, we do see that he plays a significant role in his relationship to Christ because he was from the house of David. Now, why does that matter? Because we know that in Scripture, it was prophesied that there would be one who would come from the line of David, who would be seated on the throne, and he would take the throne of David and rule forever Now, many people believe that the genealogy that is given in Luke is Mary's genealogy. And so, uh, if if that's true, she also comes from the line of Judah. She would also be connected to the house of David. But here, it's, it's clear that Joseph is of the house of David and that Jesus would take the throne of his father, David, speaking of the lineage and the connection that he would have to fulfilling this promise. First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14 summarizes the promise that had been made to David long ago. It says, "'When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you.'" but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. See, Gabriel here, as he speaks to Mary, is saying this promise is being fulfilled. The son of the most high has come, and he will reign on the throne of his father David forever. This reveals to us the reality that Christ is the exalted king. And let me say this, If all of creation is commanded to bow to the kingship kingship of Christ, why do we so often live like we are an exception? Why Why do we so often live like Christ doesn't need to be Lord over our lives? Why do we so often live like the commands of Christ are simply a suggestion or good advice that is offered to us to take or leave? we... We see Christ as Savior, yes, but also as Lord. There's no limit to his jurisdiction. He has given us his word, not only to obey, but as the good shepherd who leads. We flourish under the lordship of Christ, under his kingly rule. He alone deserves to be on the throne of our hearts. Brother, sister, are you anxious this morning? Isn't it good to know That your life is ruled by a good and kind shepherd who knows better than you do. And so we we hear this promise made to Mary, but receive it as a great comfort and encouragement for ourselves. There are two actions that accompany the incarnation. First, and perhaps this is obvious because we've already alluded to it so much, but God's promises are fulfilled. God's promises are fulfilled in the promise that Christ would be conceived of the Virgin Mary. There are 574 verses in the Old Testament that point to the coming of Christ and they are all fulfilled throughout his lifetime. Matthew 1, 22, whenever he is referring to this proclamation of Gabriel, he said that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The application to you in this moment is to remember that God is faithful. Sometimes it might seem like the waiting is growing long. Sometimes it might feel as if God's promises won't come to pass, but God is always faithful. The good work that he began in you, he will bring it to the day of completion. The the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. As Psalm 34 says, even whenever it sometimes feels like your prayers aren't making it past the ceiling, God has fulfilled his promises throughout the pages of Scripture, and he will fulfill his promises to you. And the second action here that accompanies the incarnation is that the humanly impossible is supernaturally accomplished. What does Mary ask? How will this be? How could this possibly be? And the angel Gabriel points to the life of Elizabeth. And he says the one who is barren, she's giving birth. She's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. She's she's almost into the third trimester here. God is able to do what seems humanly impossible. Genesis eighteen fourteen is quoted here. The promise that was made to Abraham and Sarah that they would conceive a child who would bless all the families of the earth the same way that God has done what seemed impossible with humans then, is possible with him now. And he's about to prove the very same thing in the life of Mary. Pastor Tabidi Anyabule says this in reflecting on this passage. The moment that you admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible with God. The moment that you admit that God exists, you must deny that anything is impossible. The Israelites knew that it was possible for God to lead his people through the Red Sea on dry ground. Daniel knew that it was possible to sit in a den of lions and yet leave unscathed. The army that was led by Joshua knew that it was possible to make a, an entire city crumble simply by marching around it and proclaiming that God is Lord of all. Then Christ comes, and what do we see? That the lame walk, the blind see, those who are possessed become liberated, that those who are even dead are raised back to life. The impossible becomes possible when God is involved. And I can't help but think about what Luke would later write in chapter 18, whenever he, whenever he has the conversation with the rich young ruler. And he says, it'll be hard for those who are rich, those who rely on themselves to enter the kingdom of God. And, and the disciples hearing this in verse 26 say, then who can be saved? But verse 27, Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, because of our sin, it is impossible for us to climb our way to God. And yet God came to us because of our sin. It is impossible to place our faith in Christ. And yet God calls faith a gift that he alone gives that opens our blinded eyes to see our sin and our need for a savior. What seems more impossible than a resurrection after a crucifixion and yet what do we know that christ breathed his last saying it is finished goes into the tomb for three days and yet his body was not found because he was resurrected from the dead and we know that if the tomb is empty then anything is possible so let me ask what is your how will this be how could this be Lord, you know I've been battling this same addiction for years. Can I really be free of this? Lord, you know my marriage is on the rocks. I don't know if there's any way forward. Can you really restore this? Lord, you know that every time I try to bring up any kind of spiritual conversation with my brother, with my dad, they shut it down. Lord, I'm trying to work up the courage to, to start a Bible study at, at work or to walk across the street and, and meet my neighbor, but it seems hard. Lord, we're just, we're just a church that meets in a, in a rec center in the middle of a neighborhood. Could you really use people like us to do something that makes an eternal impact around the world? And what, what, do, we, what do we see? That what is impossible with man is possible with with God, that the dead have life in his name, that those who are enslaved by addiction find freedom in Christ, that marriages that seemed practically over could be saved by the promises of God, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Daniel Darling, reflecting on the life of Mary, says this, Mary has a rags-to-riches story. Not because Jesus made her famous, but because she, like everyone who receives Jesus, was brought from death to life, from poverty of soul to the riches of heaven. This is not only Mary's journey, but the journey of everyone who encounters Jesus by faith. This is the story that the presence of Jesus can make you new and change the trajectory of your life forever. Two responses of faith as we close this time. First, confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 32 says that he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is different from the way that Gabriel says, you will call his name Jesus. Now he says he will be called the Son of the Most High, which means that throughout the life of Jesus, many would look upon him and recognize he is the Son of the Most High. When Peter was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He called him the Son of the Most High. The soldier at the foot of the cross who had acted as a part of Christ's crucifixion says surely this man is the Son of God. Every Christian in this room has confessed and called him the Son of the Most High. You see, the good news of the Christmas story is that the birth of Jesus was not the last miraculous birth that ever took place, but that every single person that recognizes their need for Christ, the sin in their heart, and calls upon Christ as Lord, that they are born again, as Jesus would say in John chapter 3, that you would experience a miraculous birth as you say, I indeed believe that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. That he is Lord of my life and I long to follow him. Is that your confession? Second, submitting to God's will. What does Mary say? She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She said, Lord, wherever you're, you're leading, I'm going. The answer is yes. Simply ask the question. Now imagine the ridicule that she would have received as a woman who was unmarried. Now, Claiming that the, the child that is in her womb was conceived supernaturally. And yet, she trusted the Lord, whatever the cost. She said yes to being God's servant and accepted that as an honorable role. Would you submit to wherever the Lord is leading? I don't know what that looks like for you. For some of you, that might be calling upon the name of Christ today. For others of you, you've trusted Christ and yet you've never followed through with believer's baptism. And that's what it looks like to submit to God's will and to say, I'm your servant. For others, it might look like committing to a church family and saying, you know, I want to plant roots somewhere that I can grow alongside others and find a way to serve. What does it look like for you to say, you know what? The Lord has clearly laid out his will for me to be a godly wife or husband, a godly student, a godly mother or father, a a godly coworker. What does it look like for you to say as Mary did, I will submit, lead me as you will. You see, we serve because Jesus first came to serve us. The passage that Sarah read from Philippians 2, 5 through 11 shows that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." so that we could see that He is the Son of the Most High, that He is the Messianic King, high and exalted, and that He gives life to all who believe. You see, the dream that God had planted deep in His people's heart had come to pass through the coming of Christ, because He was God with them, Emmanuel. Let's pray.